So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. <laughs> How do you add value? Well, so let me jump in on the, on the thing about what would you advise an entrepreneur that's thinking about that. And, you know, it always struck me that, you know, so a combination of thoughts, Bob talking about this idea of if you can see the path forward on the, on the you know, growth of your company, you know, why sell it? There's a there's an interesting tension there because it, it, it strikes me that if you have a business that you grow it to a certain point and you don't see the way forward, if someone else can't see the way forward, then they're... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today's going to be a little bit of a different format. We invited two of our favorite recent guests to come on the show and do a joint interview together since they know each other. We've got Cliff Hudson, who was the CEO at Sonic as they grew from about $10 million to their recent exit of $2.3 billion. And we've got Bob Rosenberg, who took over Dunkin' Donuts from his dad back at a million and a half dollar type valuation and grew them to $11 billion before his exit. We were doing an intro for the show and it was so good and I was recording it that I said, hey, let's just go from here. And we didn't do an intro. So this is me going back and doing an intro and we'll have you jump right into our conversation. Thanks for tuning in. I want to talk about this idea from this story, though, because why do you think that there are so many of us who we know we should listen, we know we should ask, but we do show up with prescriptions. Why do you think that's so common? There's nothing more precious to a person than their own ideas. If you've had some degree of success in life, and most people do it, particularly those who end up in a boardroom, there is an element that creeps in that begin to believe you have answers for things. It, it, it was something that occurred to me in, in my career. I was very guilty of it when I was younger hopefully dropped it by the wayside as I grew older. But it was something that a, an author by the name of David Halberstam identified in his book called The Best and the Brightest. It's called hubris or arrogance. And, and I think for me, anyways, I, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, I found one of the greatest impediments to my future success was past success, particularly at a young age, mm. because I had spent the time in business school sort of sorting out what I would do to the family business, which was very different than what was there before. And because of good professors and because of just happenstance, it worked very well for five years, incredibly well. And before I knew it, I had taken a company my dad couldn't sell for a million and a half dollars and was sitting on a $150 million business market cap within five years. And that influenced me and, and in a way did not serve me well. I started to focus on the wrong things, kept shooting from the hip, thought I had all the answers when in fact, 
the, the circumstances of having the right strategy and the right organization in the first five years was part of the reason for success. And I then changed all of that and paid a terrible price. And the company paid a terrible price. So it, it was a little bit of that kind of experience falling from grace that really helped me sort of learn that lesson. And, but I still fell into it even later in, in other venues. I, you know, I thought every word out of my mouth was a jewel. And it just isn't true. And there are a lot of... I, I, won't, I won't tell anybody you said that. <laughs> yeah, you're too kind. So that's, I think, I think, I think that's part of the reason, is, is, is in my case anyways, I can't speak for everybody, but in my case, I was very successful, very young, and that did not serve me well. Well, I have this theory that, I have this theory that it's a real base instinct sort of thing. And that is uh, when you screw up, nobody, everybody, everybody wants to avoid pain. So when you screw up, you got you to ask yourself, how do I avoid doing that again? But when you succeed, particularly if you succeed wonderfully, you have a tendency to walk away and say, well, I succeeded because I'm so smart, you know? And, and so you go on, you don't, you don't do a postmortem on brilliance, you know? You don't do a postmortem on success. You do a postmortem on a screw up, you know? And, and the consequence, though, is that people then get blinded as to, you know, what, how they should be thinking about the future. And the more success they have, then it begs begs for that you know the, the hubris that you're you know describing. So, well, I, I want to talk more about your books, and we will do that. But on this theme here, you know, I feel like I have both of you to thank for helping me realize I was doing that again. You know, it was fun to have both of you on the show already, and and you both gave me you know advice for what we've been thinking about for the next iteration of our business with the real estate stuff, and it's, they really were contributions in me realizing that, you know, we were, we were very successful in certain ways with our last fund 10 years ago. And so I just assumed that everybody would want into the version we've been building this year. And after talking to two of you and, and a couple of the other guests who've been on recently, I changed tactics. And instead of going and selling the investment, I went and did customer interviews and asked questions. And I found out most of the people we were talking to would rather just buy a building with us. They didn't want to fund the general partner of a REIT. They just wanted to own a building. And it's painful. I, I basically feel like I just wasted a year of my life from that hubris of like, oh yeah, everybody will want to buy this because it's what I want. And uh, anyway, so I, I appreciate the guidance from, from both of you on that for me. You're welcome. Um, well, why don't we do this? Let, let's talk about books for a minute. Bob, do you want to tell us a bit about Around the Corner? I know people who've, who heard the previous episode will know, but but in case we've got anybody who wasn't on that one, and then Cliff, will you go next? Yeah, you bet. Basically, after 35 years of running a business and then another 10 or 12 years of serving as a director of different companies, among them Sonic, and, and, and teaching as an adjunct professor at Babson College in the graduate school, people told me and had thought about it that maybe some of my experiences might be useful to future generational leaders and business people. And so I chronicled the 35 years of my career, which basically ended up into what I call six eras, each with, uh, because customers keep changing and because competition keeps changing, technology keeps changing. Each era really required a different set of responses. And I, I sort of mirrored those through the four activities I thought were most critical to a, to a CEO or a leader, uh, strategy, organization, communication, and then just crisis management with the four lenses through each of those six eras. And it really ended up as sort of a, a buffet 
of ideas. I, I don't I don't know about you, just but for me, I, I find that when I attend a seminar, read a book, I basically come away with one, two, if I'm very lucky, three nuggets of information. And it's generally with respect to what I'm wrestling with at the time. So, and, and because 35 years is a long time and a long time to make a lot of mistakes, you know, basically there's something in there for the entrepreneur. The story of franchising is a very useful one to people who are thinking about running a business. Also the need, and in my view, Cliff will have a different orientation about apprenticeship and, and, and persistence. Or whether you're now scaling a business through through adolescence, and I think within the book, the work that we did on planning and organization to develop a high-powered organization useful, and then even to larger companies uh, that have boards of directors or advisors, the way we organize that might be of use. So basically, it's a buffet of ideas and experiences, things that worked, things that didn't work, and it was designed basically to help the next or current generation of people who are managing activities, whether it's a family, whether it's a community, whether it's a business. Well, I'm interested in your experience. You know, when we first talked, it it had come out quite recently or was maybe, yeah, I think it had just come out a few days earlier, actually. And now you've got all these five-star reviews on Amazon and, and I see people talking about it on social media and stuff. What's the experience been like for you since it's come out? It's broadening. And, uh, it introduced me to a whole new world. The world of publishing was one that I really hadn't understood or participated in. It's helpful to me because at my age, I think it's important that I keep getting challenged to learn new things and to be adaptable and adjustable. And, and that, that's helped me a lot to do that. I hired, had to hire a media coach because I was satisfied with my first few podcasts. And, and that helped me. I, I had to get used to being a public, a semi-public personality, at least for a while, for my 15 minutes of, of fame. And, 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 I, and I, I have to tell you, I'm very warmed by the fact that some people have found value in it. And that was the reason for writing it. So it's very satisfying at this stage of my life to where my purpose really is to try to help as many people as I, I humanly possibly can. And I'm glad that, that it's helped people. So overall, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. It also helped me put into perspective certain issues in my life by virtue of writing it that were quite important. My relationship with my dad was a wonderful one and a trying one at times. And in, in having to explain that in the book and the way I wrote it, it was very helpful to me and put things very much in perspective for me. And that was a big benefit to me personally. So in a whole wide range of ways. And the whole experience of writing it and then marketing it has been very, very helpful for me personally. And hopefully others have found some value there as well. Well, I listened to it on audible.com and you, you got a five-star review for me. I wrote something up on Amazon too. Hey, uh, <laughs> but can you share, why don't you share one of the entrepreneur principles? Is that okay? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I think that one of the things that, that I believe in came away with uh, and, and this is really a thing that maybe Cliff and I can discuss, is uh, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of apprenticeship. I find it doesn't satisfy all eras of your career, but I find in the initial jobs that you have, in my case, it was food service, having worked a long time, know the language, know where the opportunities are, know where the competition is at, is very essential. It's very hard to be an entrepreneur and my experience at Babson was that 80% of all successful entrepreneurs spent three to five years or 10,000 hours 
in their industry and learning their trade. Yes, there are serial entrepreneurs, but they're more like the 20% that do that. 80% of the people know their industry, have worked in their industry. And that would be one of the critical things that I portray. And one of the benefits I maintain of franchising is that if you buy a franchise, you are buying a business where people have put in the trial and error so often necessary that telescopes that 10,000 hours of apprenticeship that allow you to be able to get started and have a lot higher success rate than you might have had as an independent, maybe five to 10 times more likelihood of success in franchising. So franchising is, is, is oftentimes not a particularly well understood option for people who want to go into business. You, got, you are in business by yourself, uh, for yourself, but not by yourself. In other words, you have a company that's already worked its way through a lot of the trial and error and processes and procedures to create success. So, so the, that would be kind of the kind of lessons I, I, one of the lessons I would suggest at least for any would-be entrepreneur. Yeah, I love it. Cliff, same. I, I, I read your, I listened to yours on Audible as well and, and also left you a five-star review. And, you know, let's, let's tell people about Master of None and then let's, let's talk about the same subject that Bob brought up. Is that okay? Well, if I, if I can, yes, that's great. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to piggyback something with uh, Bob's stories and comments that Lee, I think, are a good bridge between the two, if that's all right. One of the things in reading Bob's book, so as Bob mentioned, he came on the Sonic board shortly after we went public in the early 90s. He was on our board until 2015, so you know, between 20 and 25 years, and had, I knew had enormous impact on how we thought about our business as a brand or didn't, you know, and, and also a big impact on me from mentoring and guidance. But when I was reading his book, it was so interesting, as he said, one of the, one of the divisions or filters of his book has to do with governance. When I was reading Bob's book, and he says, this is the way we went organizing our board. This was the rhythm of the meetings throughout the year. These are the subject matters. This is the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I was reading this. I was going, wait a minute, Bob, that's the Sonic board. What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> and, and it took me a while to realize that, that he, he, he had snookered me, you know, <laughs> that in, in fact, what we had adopted was what he utilized in his own circumstance. And, and we, and we utilized it then for over 20 years, easily 25 years, because it was so effective in, in conducting the board's business for the, for the board. So anyway, so I offer that as a, a takeaway from Bob's book, but, but uh, the, the governance piece and its relations, uh, its relations to business broadly, and particularly sizable businesses where the board governance is a significant issue. So, you know, from my standpoint, Jess, your, your question about the book, uh, my book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. I, I've long considered myself a jack of all trades and I backed into going, you know, going into business because I never intended to, to, never had any expectation I'd be a, a, a private a comp, a company CEO or public company CEO or a business CEO, period, really. And yet I was CEO of our company for 23 years. So what was the thought in writing the book? I did have folks tell me, you know, when we talk about the history of Sonic and some of the fun stories, they would say, you really ought to commit those to writing. Those are good stories that you know, could, you know, could be a very enjoyable read and instructive for younger entrepreneurs, et cetera. So ultimately, I think I wrote the book. One, you know, we'd had a lot of success with the brand, and I felt like I could tell the story of success through a series of stories that were interesting from a human interest standpoint, but also from a, a, a younger reader that wanted to 
uh, think about a business career. But the other reason I wrote the book and I wrote part of the reason I wrote it the way I did, uh, how a jack of all trades can still reach the top. But it, it was intended to be less a bu business book about Sonic and more a, a business leadership book. And, and, you know, maybe some slight concern on my part about watching the leadership trends, you might say, in our country and, and, and beyond. People, I think, in my view, mis mistaking autocratic behavior for leadership, you know. And so my invitation by writing this book is to say to folks, look, you know, life can be managed. Life can be led on a win-win basis. Businesses can be can be strategically focused on a win-win basis, and and that things that are sustained from a organizations and activities that are have sustained success invariably are organized organized around a win-win game theory, you might say, but a win-win structure, and that's why they're sustained. That is how we ran our business for decades and, and why I think we had the success we had. We had our franchise operators' success in mind at all times, first and foremost. And, the, and because of that, we as a franchisor succeeded. So I wanted that win-win strategy to be discussed because I found too much in our society, too much of a win-lose discussion going on that I thought was not healthy for us individually, enterprise-wise, or as a country. I love it. You know, I think one of the things that I appreciate your, about your book, Cliff, is it made me feel less guilty for having ADD as a yeah, entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, it's interesting, this idea of, you know, can you put in the 10,000 hours like Bob's talking about, yeah. but does that mean you can't be interested in anything else while you put in those 10,000 hours? Yeah. Like, well, how would and, you talk about that balance? Yeah. So it's interesting to hear Bob talk about franchisees spending three to five years because in a way, you know, as I go, he causes me to then think about, well, what, what did that mean about my path? And I wasn't running a store, but I was engaged in a business. And, you know, I joined Sonic in 84 and I'd say for the first couple of years is muddling around. We bought the company in 86. Well, you know, when you got to come up with some cash and you become a stockholder of a privately held company and so on. Well, okay, that's a that's a different deal now, you know. So for me, in terms of really digging in and getting more serious about it, that was I would say that LBO in 1986 did that. By the way, there's something else happened the year before, and that was the birth of our first child. And that probably helped me get a little bit more focused too. But at any rate, if I had an entrepreneurship three to five years, I would say that, that 86 to 91 or 92 would fall in that category because I we did two LBOs and an IPO, and by the time we did the IPO. I, I was running the IPO and I could not have run things in 84, 85 when I joined the company. And it was at that point that my boss said, well, you want to be CFO. And then a year later, he said, you want to be COO, you know? So I, in a way, I think if you, if you, if I take Bob's framework in a way, my apprenticeship was that kind of 96 to uh, 86 to 91, 92. And at the same time, at all times, you know, my boss used to say to, to me, you know, if you ever, if you'll ever get focused, you could really, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it was. And my reaction was, I, ain't, I you know, if, if your idea of being focused is doing nothing but one thing, I'm not going to do it. Doesn't work, you know. And I like music too much, travel, food, uh, reading historical biographies, politics. You know, I, I had too many interests to um, settle in on, on on one thing. And so this is in part why my reference to the jack of all trades didn't consider myself 
the the public company CEO candidate backed into it, got offered it. Bob knows I got her offered it on a on a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> I was you there. Know, with no with no planning beforehand, the board said, "Hey, you want to be CEO?" And I said, "Well, what the heck? I'm already running the company. Why not?" You know, and that was it. You know, so. But there, but there, you know, there the opportunity was, and and for the next 23 years I did it. In addition to other stuff, you know, federal service part time, local public service, I'm focused on education, and you know, all kinds of other stuff, similar on, on the same path, on a parallel path. I would I would sort of build on what Cliff is saying. I see it not so as an either or, but as an and. And I think if you look behind people who move up in the world. I think they all share, at, at least to some degree, more rather than less. One of the five elements that all mental health professionals look at are how you are on the scale of adaptability. And I tend to find that people that are highly adaptable, and I would put Cliff in that category and myself to a lesser extent, but, but those people who take on new things and who can move from subject to subject with ease will tend to find they will grow beyond whether they had to initially the 10,000 hours to start their career, but whether they can move upward and play in a bigger arena, I think to a large extent, among other things, I think also, you know, there, there, there's other social skills, but, but one of the five elements that most psychologists really measure is this whole notion of adaptability. And I, I see that, for example, Cliff started as a lawyer, and that was his training, but he then became competent in finance. When he was given that responsibility, he learned all there was to learn. Then he was a CEO, and you know he he listened carefully to others among my among them myself. And when he saw a good idea, and I think I said to him once, I think this is truly a marketing company. And before I knew it, he was a maven in marketing. So he showed this incredible adaptability to move from thing to thing, not not losing what he had in the past, but adding to the repertoire each time. This kind of breadth was extreme and quick, I saw, I thought. So I see as an and, not as an either or, between whether or not 10,000 hours is the end, it's just the beginning. I love that. Well, Cliff, almost 30 years of friendship here, what's one of the things that has stood out to you the most as far as lessons you've learned from Bob? Well, one, I learned to take his advice, and if I didn't agree with advice, don't just don't object right away. Go off and do some homework. <laughs> and and so I think I think one of the things that so first of all, what did I learned from Bob. Well, I learned how to help run a board, and and all all the processes with with board governance, et cetera, were tremendous. Two. What's when, one specific lesson there? Okay. Well, uh, I'll give you one specific lesson and skip the board governance thing because the other one is more important, I think. When Bob came on the board, I'm sure in his first year on the board at one of our board meetings, so let's just say this is 92. One of our board meetings, Bob asked the question in 1992. Bob says, how do you think about your brand? And I think our management team, the response was, what's a brand, you know? And, and so Bob really forced us into a process. He, he, I mean, it was, there was a void there, but he forced us into a process of doing an annual brand review, which then became part of this cycle uh, within the, you know, the four, four meetings a year of the board. And one of, one of the meetings, maybe it was our, uh, kind of our winter meeting, focused on doing an annual brand review, a real deep dive in all aspects of the, 
not just the business, which the board did year round, but literally consumer perspective about the brand, the evolution of the brand, where the brand would be going, et cetera. So this occurring in 92, 93, by the time we got into a big license renegotiation and, and, and thinking about where we wanted the business to go in 90, 94 into 95, boy, that fed all kinds of stuff with our management team and primarily Patty Moore and me, but with Bob asking questions, a fellow outside our company that was heading up our, our ad agency, Bill Fromm, him raising me some of the same points. This became absolutely transformative for our business because it took us on an integrated planning path of physical facilities, employee uniforms, nature of menus, consistency of menus, nature of television creative, and all of these things getting healthy alignment to, to do just that, you know, where four years before we said, what's a brand, you know, by 96, 97, man, we were knocking it out, building a brand in a really big way. And this came back to Bob's questioning and his, and his guidance, not trying to do it for us, but insisting that we have some discipline in how we were thinking about it. And it was transformative for the business, really was. In my eye, that is a wonderful story as to why Sonic was so successful. Rather than dismissing a question, someone paid attention. That's the kind of adaptability that I was referring to earlier. The ability to think laterally, not to dismiss a foreign idea, to give it some heft. In some cases, I was wrong and, and I was pushing things that, that wouldn't have served us well. And others, I wasn't. But the leadership, Cliff in particular, never dismissed it never belittled it, treated it with dignity and investigated. And if it fit and if he thought it had value, he adapted it. Highly adaptable. And it's an incredible quality to have for a leader. Now, he, he basically was listening with two ears and talking just with one mouth. And I was listening twice as much as he was communicating with his own own ideas. And and he, he, he was the one that made it happen. Because you can be on lots of forums and you can raise ideas but if there's no reception on the other end, it's not going to go anywhere. If someone has a not invented here mentality, it's going to die and wither on the vine. And it didn't in Sonic. I always felt there was a, a willingness to listen. Sometimes the ideas were okay, and sometimes they didn't hold water. And I was okay with that. It was a different business than the one I had come from. There were distinctions and differences. But it's to his credit, and that's where the, the credit belongs. Well, my greatest adaptability was adapting to Bob's ideas. So <laughs> no, <that's not> true. <laughs> you push back. You wouldn't let me go into Mexico. I wanted to go into Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, maybe in the next place we can go. I one of the things we're working on more at Greystoke is, you know, the podcast is great. We have over hundred thousand downloads a month. It's it's really been a fun thing, but it is kind of one way. And so we're we're looking at something for next year. We're gonna start doing something called Greystoke Live of kind of having events and a community for entrepreneurs and investors. And so we're really going to focus a lot on kind of M&A. So how can entrepreneurs prepare their companies? And instead of just worrying about making money, how can they engineer a business that's more attractive to a potential acquirer? You know, probably more mid-market companies, maybe not the multi-billion dollar companies like you guys built. But so I'd love your guys' advice on that. And then the other one is entrepreneurs, once they do have the big exit, and now all of a sudden, Maybe they're more in wealth preservation mode instead of wealth accumulation mode. And how does how do those changes, you know, how does their mentality change? And and we're looking to put together like peer groups for them to give each other advice as well as from experts. 
But Bob, maybe we can start with you. When you think about a question that entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurs who want to build a sellable business, even if they don't want to sell it yet, but they want to build a sellable business, what's what's a question that you think they should ask Cliff? You know, basically, my, I had to face this very issue about when do you sell a business? And the model I came up with was fundamentally if you could see yourself clearly able to achieve your objectives prospectively, you had sort of the vision, the energy, the will, let's assume for the moment that in my case, I wanted to grow earnings after I settled down from the first phase, which was a 50% growth earnings per share. I wanted to grow between 15 and 20% earnings per share per year. So long as I could see a way clearly to do that, we had the energy, the aspiration, the bandwidth to do that. I wasn't a big believer in selling a business because quite truthfully, once you sell a business, it's gone and very hard to recreate it all over again. It takes years and years and a lot of luck. So the first question I would ask someone is what is your objective and how comfortable are you at your ability to achieve that? How far in the future? Because once you cannot achieve that objective with comfort and you can't see yourself clearly do it, in my view, that is the time to sell a business. Not when someone comes in with a price over the transom. That's not the time to sell. The time to sell, in my view. I had watched Duncan go from my father couldn't get a million and a half dollars in 1963. The company just sold 70 years later for $11 billion. That's a pretty aggressive rate of growth. And all during that time, we were able to achieve our earnings per share objective. We had the ability to be able to create that in our industry. And so... So that, that would be the, the question I would ask a would-be entrepreneur. Can you achieve your, your objective? And can you see your web clear and you have the energy and do you have the desire to do that? Okay. So I, I actually really love that as a decision tree kind of thing to know, is it time or not, right? Maybe I'll throw one more wrench in the cranks there. What about the baby boomer who's built more of a mid-sized company and it's, you know, it's time, you know, and for age reasons or, or other, you know, family reasons, things like this, they need to start thinking about preparing for that sale. What, what's your advice for that individual who's mostly been focused on making money? Now he needs to focus on making a business attractive to an acquirer. I, you know, I basically, the business has to be able to, I, I, I wouldn't skinny down expenses to, to bubble to the price at one time. I would, on a going forward basis, I would then try to find a buyer that is most like myself in terms of the values that I hold dear, that love the brand, and that are willing to commit themselves to it, have the capability and ability to do that, and are willing to take care of the team of people who help me create the value. Because as you pull back the curtain, and I know Cliff would agree with this 100%, you will find not one person responsible one owner or anybody. It really is a team of people that have helped make that business successful. And you would want to make sure that they are going to be well taken care of prospectively and that the people that you sell it to are going to subscribe, that they understand the business. When I had to attempt to sell a business to protect it from being uh, invaded by a predator from Canada who would have lost the business in my view, luckily I found a brand builder in the United Kingdom, didn't get along with them on all fronts. And I would say it was a bit a bit of a nine-year rocky relationship at times, but basically they were band, brand builders. They weren't destroyers, and the brand thrived under their leadership and went on to continue to grow in value. And I was happy with who I ultimately had to sell the business to. It wasn't my choice to sell it then, but if I had to find a buyer, I found a buyer that subscribed to the same thing. They had bought other businesses out of hostile environments by families. 
They'd kept many family members members on to run the businesses, including Hiram Walker and, and Makers Mark, the, the Salmons in, in, in Kentucky. And, and basically, they, that, was their, that was their MO. That was their value system. They were brand builders. And, and, they, and they weren't you know, predators in the term they're going to stretch out or take out all well, the out of the business. You, you know what I love about that advice is, who is the most likely to recognize the value of what you're doing? Somebody who sees the world the way you see it. Like they're going to appreciate what you've done, right? Well, and, and so on this same subject, what's a question you would ask Cliff? What do you think, what do you think Cliff should weigh in on with this same subject? In terms of, go ahead, reframe it again for me. Um, Okay, if you were if you were thinking about Cliff's special traits and skills, and you were thinking, man, entrepreneurs who are thinking about preparing a company for sale, what should they ask Cliff? What is Cliff great at? Well, that's what I would ask him. <laughs> How do you add value? Well, so let me jump in on the on the thing about what would you advise an entrepreneur that's thinking about that. And you know, it always struck me that. Yeah, so a combination of thoughts. Bob talking about this idea of if you can see the path forward on the on the you know growth of your company, you know why sell it? There's a there's an interesting tension there because it, it it strikes me that if you have a business that you grow it to a certain point and you don't see the way forward, if someone else can't see the way forward, then they're they're going to pay you a less of a premium for the company, and they may pay you a you know quite a reduced multiplier of earn, multiple of earnings if they can't see the way forward or they just don't buy it. So it it in my case, I mean, I built our company for you know two and three decades, and then someone else came in and just flat wanted to buy the company. So they bid up, bid up, bid up. They bid against themselves. No one else ever bid, you know. And they but they bid up them over themselves several times, and and then paid a nice premium. So that it was it was not something we decided it was time to sell the company, and it wasn't something that we had a certain price. They just got so aggressive and they bought it. You know, my advice to someone who's thinking that they eventually want to capitalize on what they've built and capitalize it on it in a way that you know it does involve selling, change control of the company and so on, it really goes back to not focusing on the change. And that is uh, almost twofold. What's the you know sustainability of what they've built? And, and uh, so you've got this tension of uh, saying, I'm going to sell it now. And yet at the same time, you have to be able to show some sustainability to what you built or nobody's going to want to buy it or not pay the same price. But the, the, on, the, on a parallel path to that, I think for someone that wants sustainability of something at a, with a healthy growth rate, et cetera, building culture and having a strong culture of the organization is an, is an underpinning that kind of helps drive everything else. We do talk a lot about business strategies. I think everybody in business, anybody looking at a business talks about business strategies, which is very important. But I think a healthy culture to a company that retains your best employees, that uh, rewards them, that, that can show them good career paths, that allows them, that doesn't force them into silos, but allows them to engage in broader aspects of the business where they feel like they can take ownership and solve problems and help define the future of the company. These are characteristics of culture that build sustainability. And so it's not a it's not an aside. It can't be an afterthought. It's not irrelevant to this idea of value and sustainability. And my pitch would be it's a it's a foundational issue that without which you're gonna have a hard time convincing somebody about the sustainability of what you've built. Yeah, that's great. I agree with that. Well, maybe we'll start with you, Cliff, this time, go on the other side. You know, 
the other side of this community is is the investors and entrepreneurs after they've had the big exit. You know, so we've got so far signed up. We've got from a family office, kind of more in the multiple millions, and then the top end is a, a billionaire guy that we used to own an energy company with. And thinking about entrepreneurs anywhere in that scale, who, you know, they've they've had probably decades of of consistent aggressive growth or things like this, and now the world is different. Do you have any advice of of post transition, like what any just thoughts for thoughts for how to view life and and specifically, you know, investing and kind of, you know, taking care of the value that they've they've captured? Well, I think that one of the first questions to ask someone who's gone through that change like that is a question that I uh, went through and was asked to me by by a guy named Bob Rosenberg when my company changed changed hands and I did not plan on staying around when I knew the company was going to be sold. I've been running it as a public company, but as the chairman and CEO for 23 years, and I wasn't interested in becoming anything else in that context. But Bob asked me the question, are you, are you interested in still primarily serving an executive function or are you, do you think you're at a point in life where you'd rather be doing advisory work to someone else? And so I think this is a fundamental path for someone who's just sold a company. And if you, if you're, if you still are at a point where you, you want to be pulling the levers every day and you want the challenges, the people challenges and uh, so on and so forth, then, then the question is, you know, how do you use your new resources to put you in a position to do that? But it's a critical, critical distinction because if you're, no matter what your age is, if you said, look, I had, I had the experience being a CEO and I'm not just in doing that again, I'd like to invest in other people's, et cetera, and serve on their boards. Well, that's a fundamentally different path. So I think the, the person has to answer that question for themselves and then and then act accordingly. And if they're going to be a serial entrepreneur, then you know, fine, get off on the other path and start building the new business. But if not, then uh, then head down the other path. But it's a very individual, it's it's a decision for the individual. And the answer to that may be different one, almost certainly it'd be different a person's, depending on where they are in life, you know? Yeah. Yes. In my book, I had taken everybody through how I went about this transition. And I basically utilized the same planning language and planning process that we use corporately for myself personally. So the question I asked is, what is my purpose in life? Which is sort of a broader generational thing. Of how do I see myself? What, 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 what does success mean to me? And the second element would be mission. What is it that I want to be over the next three to five years? What do the objectives are? What do I want to have? And what four or five things, levers, am I going to pull to bridge the scarce resources of time and money to the achievement of that purpose, mission, and set of objectives? And in my case, as I saw the end coming to my career at Duncan after 35 years, I basically decided that I didn't want to be a CEO after 35 years, that I really wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to be an advisor. And my purpose was to add value to people's lives. And so I began to reach out before I actually left the company to become an adjunct professor at a, at a local college in, at called Babson, where I was on the board of trustees and began to teach to see if I, in fact, was good at it and liked it. I did. And I also was able to luckily be asked to join the board of Sonic. It was my first commercial board. I'd been in a lot of not-for-profits. But, but never for a commercial board. And I liked that and I love the relationship I had with Cliff. So it helped me prepare before I got there and I had a plan. I've now done that another time 
as I, my board, because of my age, I am now board retired. So I had to create another one. And part of that, of what I was going to do was the, the, the creation of this book and the speaking tour of at least trying to sell it and merchandise it and, and hopefully reach as broad an audience as possible. And now I'm on to my fourth career doing the very same thing again, uh, talking about maybe dusting off an idea I had in the, in the late 60s about creating enterprise zones of franchise, complementary franchise businesses in inner cities. So, so basically, I, my, my suggestion is to utilize, at least it worked for me and hopefully for some others, is to use the same kind of rigorous planning process and language that you plan a corporate strategy, the same thing for a personal strategy. You know, I love where both of you went on that. In, in our research, it shows the statistics, and now this is businesses of all sizes, but that approximately 75% of people who sell their company end up not being happy with it afterwards. And it comes down to two things. One, either looking back, they realize there's levers that they didn't pull and they could have got more value for it that weren't, you know, that they feel like they left too much on the table. But the other biggest one is something like 80% of them do not have a written plan of what they're going to do after they sell. And like after, you know, three weeks straight of golf, they start getting a little depressed, a little down. They start like, they, you know, what is my purpose in life stuff? Questions come, come up. And I feel like that's such a great framework, Bob, to, to like, hey, don't come learn some new process. Apply the thing you've gotten so good at. Just apply it in this other area. Cliff, do you have any thoughts on this as well? Well, I was listening to you and also thinking about a parallel path and see if I can weave these two together. You know, it is an interesting thing. Bob kind of describes that as your job once that transition occurs. You know, you, you have to make those plans yourself and you have to do it in a, in a, if you do it in a formal fashion that you take company through, you're going to be, you're going to be better off. I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to just de- deviate for a second and, and yeah, talk, yeah, about, sure. talk, talk about a, another lesson from these processes that I think was pretty critical for Sonic with Bob on the board when I was CEO. Bob had had, was of a, a mindset and a philosophy driven out of experience about a, a company owning more than one brand. And his regular push and perspective he offered at board meetings was, you know, the company is going to be better off if it owns and stays focused on one brand because it'll it'll build the brand and you won't get diffused by or diluted by other efforts, et cetera. I, I have to say this is one so you can you can look at you can look at impact from advice from the standpoint of saying do this, consider this, do this. This is one of these areas where it was really don't do this. You know, don't, don't, you, you look at some other big companies that are multi-brand, maybe it worked for them for another reason, another time. Don't assume that because it worked for them, it's going to work for you. And it really was Bob's urging. I think there would have been far greater chance that I would have been tempted to acquire one or two other brands and try to put them under, you know, an umbrella of companies had Bob not had that, that philosophy. But I felt like one, Bob was per- persuasive in his commentary Two, I felt like even if I if if there would have been something I thought it made sense to acquire, I would have taken it to the board and pushed it. But I had to admit, I think I just stayed away from that to the greatest degree because of it. So here's the byproduct, though. You have all the same talent, all the same energy, all the drive, all the focus, the desire to build value in the company. But but because you feel like the guardrails have been painted in such a way that they're saying, and do it with one brand, the consequence of which is you build that brand, you know? <laughs> and, and so and so that's uh, the, by, the byproduct, the consequence of that limitation was we built a national brand that was 
uh, very strong. I've been going from there for two years last month, and it's just as strong as ever and, and blowing through this pandemic uh, pandem- uh, pandemic era. And it's uh, fascinating to see. So this is a different sort of influence that Bob had from a strategic standpoint. You know, what would it have been like had we done something different? I, I don't have the answer to that question. That's a, that's it's, a, that's an it's interesting you should raise that question because it's one that's on my mind constantly because conditions have changed. My reading of history had been Textron and General Electric and all of these conglomerates. And as time went by, they didn't seem to perform as well as highly focused, vertically integrated businesses dedicated to single set of customers. More recently, however, there have been platform companies that have been created. We both sold, our companies got sold to Inspire Brands. And their, their strategy is totally different. They have a whole portfolio of brands. So I don't know, it was in one conversation I was having with Cliff, and I ventured to say, you know, we have to watch that. And he said, I thought you were against that. And I said, <laughs> well, I was, but maybe there's new information. I'm always struck by a saying that runs around in my head by the physicist and philosopher Nels Bohr. He said, there are two kinds of truths in the world. He said, there's the simple truth, and that's easy to see because on the other side of it is a lie. He said, then there's the big truth, and that's a hell of a lot harder to see because on the other side of that, well, may be another truth. So I've always kept in my head this notion that, yes, I have preferences, but conditions can change. Things can be different. People can find ways I can't see. I have to be open to reconceptualize. And I'm in the process of doing that on this very particular subject. I have not closed the door. I thought at a particular point in time, given a size, given our opportunities, given the bandwidth that we had both at Duncan and as well as Sonic and at Domino's businesses I was associated, we have plenty of bandwidth. We didn't need other businesses to distract us. But there may well be a new day coming where people can take a lot of backroom costs out of the business, make them more effective, maybe even an era of big data, provide more benefit. I'm just watching. So at that point, I would use Nels Bohr as a reason. <laughs> well, it, and it makes, Blame Nels, it makes not me. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it makes me think of a third scenario too, of like, look at the difference between the CEO of Dairy Queen and Warren Buffett that own, you know, that runs Berkshire, right? Yeah, Where, yeah. You know, he's got somebody dedicated who eats, breathes, and sleeps Dairy Queen, but he, you know, he doesn't necessarily have to, right? He can, he can, he can run the holding company that owns those passionate brands, right? That it's the, those different combinations are interesting, aren't they? I, I would say, I go back a long time. I remember a guy by the name of Harris Cooper who used to run Dairy Queen for the the, the group in Minneapolis that owned it. And, and I would say that a lot of our success at Sonic was a result of the fact that we did a better job in the ice cream business than did Dairy Queen. <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't know okay. how you feel about that, Cliff. You and I have never done Well, on the ice cream business front, I mean, if you look at, so our home, home base, Sonic's home base of Oklahoma City, Dairy Queen we used to have a pretty significant presence here. It's, I mean, it's been 25 years, 25 years this spring that Sonic rolled out an ice cream program. But I don't think there's a, I don't know where there's a Dairy Queen in the state anymore. <laughs> well, maybe you need to question this. Yeah, another Maybe you need to question my premise here, huh? Exactly, exactly. I, I would. I would. I mean, um, 
And by the way, that's another one of Cliff's great strengths is to look at his ability. When people were telling him that a franchisee was selling ice cream and it's not to be done here, he went out and talked to the franchisee, saw the opportunity, and he and he not only put in you know soft serve ice cream or or or, or a whip, he then went to 10% butterfat, which was real ice cream, a superior product, and ultimately wore the competition down. And that was because of his adaptability, his willingness to reach out. And, and, and to try a new idea. And I, I would say that because of the fact that we had Cliff dedicated and the whole organization dedicated to that brand, I think we were able to beat Dairy Queen to the punch. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I, I have to wonder a point in time, and I have to say the summer before our company was acquired, literally 30, 60 days before an announcement came out about the deal, something was presented to us. And I don't have any disease, desire or need to say or what that was, but something was presented to us that had we not been in that circumstance, I would have been very, very tempted to uh, consider that second brand. And it could have, it could have been a very interesting for me personally. It could have been a very interesting exterior career extender. You know, to it would have made it would have been an interesting next you know quote five years. I'm okay by it either way. I was going to say by the way on that 10 percent butter fat. I, I give personal testimony to what a, what a big deal that uh, 10% <laughs> that's what I can do for you. So, yeah. That's too funny. You know, I, I was back home last summer for, for the parades and stuff. And, and my brother, who's been my business partner and started our charity child rescue with me, you know, we've been doing stuff for 15 years. He kind of poked me and said, Oh, Jess, getting a little, getting a little chubby, huh? And, and so I, I did like a no sugar challenge with my teenage daughter. And then I got into the Tim Ferriss four hour body stuff. Right. But my whole premise is so that I can eat ice cream. That's my, that's yeah, my whole yeah. premise. It's like, right. Hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste this on useless carbs. I'm going to eat ice yeah. cream. That's, that's my man. That's Delicious my product. So I, um, most people don't realize what it's Sonic. I would guess that maybe 60% of our sales go out in a cup. Is that true, Cliff? It's a high yeah, percentage. that's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a very high percentage. That always, uh, you know, people would say we're in a hamburger business. I'd say, yeah, 17% of my sales is hamburgers, you know. So but between sense. drinks drinks and, 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 and shakes. And, shakes, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. We're, you know, we're very much a dairy business. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, very much. Well, yeah. this has been great. Maybe we'll end with this, Cliff. What's what's one question you ask Bob? Any any subject? Oh boy, oh boy. Maybe I should let Bob ask first, and you come back. Well, to okay, me. I'll give you a little direction. What's yeah. what's one question you'd ask Bob as it pertains to entrepreneurship? Okay, Bob, how do you how do you how do you coach a, a franchisee or an independent business operator about the point in time at which They've got to give up some level of control slash ownership, you know, red ownership of their business in order to really take it to a, a, a new level. Basically try to take them to other people who've already done that and enjoyed success to be a third party endorser for the whole strategy. You know, all boats rise. Sharing is a good thing. It basically opens up more opportunities and enables you to continue to grow. But some people, you know, aren't built that way. They just... They're not that flexible. They don't. They don't come that adaptable. Yeah. So sometimes you got to identify when you're not going to make that kind of sale. But but if you want to make a sale, oftentimes I found third-party endorsements of other franchise owners are the most effective way to reach that person to help them. Yeah. You know, see the light and to take yeah. the to, to jump into the unknown. 
a little bit because giving up control for some people can be very hard. For other people, it's not such a big deal at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, basically it's, it's, in our businesses, we didn't have absolute control in stock prices and stock ownership. By the same token, through the power of the planning and the power of our results, we're able to basically direct the business. Yeah. We got comfortable with that. Yeah, that's yeah. when the franchise system becomes a resource for itself. It's an interesting place to look. That's a... It's funny how often my brain goes to like statistics or facts or arguments and yet just letting them see the reality of the results of those statistics or arguments is so yeah. much more effective than making the argument, right? Yeah. That's um, right. Bob, same question. What's what's a question you would ask Cliff? I would, I, Cliff has, has, has led an incredible life. He has been head of the Oklahoma City school system. He's been head of CIPIC, which is a government agency during the Clinton administration to oversee and safeguard stockholders' rights. He has been a director of the Ford Foundation. He's been chairman of the National Trust, Preservation Trust. And my question to you is, how did you find time to do that and still grow your business at 15 to 20% compounded earnings per share? Because when I joined the board and I bought stock in Sonic, it was a $200 million market cap. When we sold, it was $2.3 billion. So it had grown tenfold in the 20 years that I had been there, tenfold. That's incredible growth. Yet at the same time, you had enough breadth and width to be able to, to, to particularly the Oklahoma City school system, had, I mean, that's a huge challenge. You weren't trained as an educator, you're a lawyer. How did you find time to do that? And how, how difficult was it, particularly moving into the realm of, that had to be highly political, Yeah, Oklahoma City. Well, so... I guess on them, I got a couple of different reactions to that. One is in the jack of all trades thing in the in the short attention span, having having something else on a parallel basis like that, I always found actually enriching, and I believe helped me do my job uh, better rather than detracted. Uh, so that's a general statement. The second thing, uh, how did I find time? So I had to give to some degree credit where credit's due, and that was that I had a had and have thankfully. A spouse, my wife, who is was was supportive of those things, and she really, you know, ha- had to carry more elements of responsibility related to our family and and some other related things that I, I necessarily gave less attention to by doing those things. And there's a price to be paid for that, but but I don't I don't, I don't think in the end that I neglected my parental duties. I don't mean that, but you do have to have a, a spouse. It's a partnership. You got to have a spouse who's willing to help carry the load there. So those are two comments of a general nature. You relate you you mentioned specifically related to the schools. Now that we're out of all of that, meaning I, I'm no longer running the company and I'm no longer chairing the school district oversight process either. In fact, I, I'd say the two together were were too much. And I did it for I when I started working on I did that for almost 10 years. I mean I think I did it for nine years or something. I think had I done it for four and gotten out, it wouldn't have been too much, but I did it too long and it was too much. And and when I quit doing the public school stuff, uh, unfortunately, it was we were less than a year away from this great recession. So there are times where I have to wonder, you know, had I not been had had uh, the degree of energy drain that I had, would I have had other things lined up to head off? Would, what would we have done differently going into the great recession? Where would we, meaning Sonic, be different? And I don't have the answer to that, but I, I have thoughts about some of the challenges of the Great Recession. 
but it was a lot of juggling, but I think ultimately it made my life uh, richer. And um, usually doing one of those things opened up doors to the other, doing the Doing the doing CIPIC opened up the door of the National Trust. Doing National Trust opened up the door of the Ford Foundation. Doing Ford Foundations opened up avenues that I'm pursuing now. So it was it made for an interesting life, and I've got no regrets about any of it. But at times it was probably overload, particularly trying to do the school system thing and Sonic simultaneously. That's interesting. Right. Otherwise, I would have thought if you didn't say it was at times challenging. I would have thought you Superman. So yeah. <laughs> Now the one that the one that was the biggest challenge was trying to do the school system and CEO of a public company at the same time. Uh, there, if everything was going fine with both, uh, you could do it. But when when things were difficult with both, in the recession of '03, things got difficult with both. That was not a fun time. Yeah, I bet. Well, listen, I obviously think that everybody should be going to Audible.com and getting their copies of your books. So. Besides going to audible.com and getting their copy of Master of None, Cliff, what's what's something you want to leave people with here today? Well, that the franchising world's a great world. And I think if, from reading my book, reading Bob's book, you can see that opportunities for entrepreneurs in franchising is a great thing. And that the other the other great thing about the franchising business that, that's sustained is it relies on a win-win strategy. The franchisee has to win. The, as does the franchisor. Life life is best when it's led that way. It's most enjoyable, but it's also more successful. And it's a it's a necessary human theme. It's a necessary guide guiding light. I think for us in the world today, not just not just in the U.S. but more broadly. Bob, same thing. You know that I think people should be going to Audible, getting their coffee around the corner. What's, well, I think, what's one I thing think, you want to leave us? I, you know, I think that what is served both Cliff and I well throughout our careers is the fact that we kept open and kept learning. It's not that we didn't make mistakes because we did, but we allowed those mistakes. We analyzed what went wrong. We talked to other people who had been through it before. We listened to podcasts. We read books. We talked to, to colleagues within and without the organization, within the organization, without the organization. And just keep on growing, and that basically that that in my view, and have a dream are sort of the secrets to life, and sort of the fountain of youth uh, is to have a dream, keep pursuing it, and keep growing, and don't be put off by setbacks. Setbacks are part of life. Life is lumpy, and you'll grow more from setbacks often than you will from success. At least that was the case for me. I learned a lot more from my setbacks than I did from my successes. And I will say the longer I've gone in life, more I found that to be true. My life gets more lumpy the further I go, you know, so. <laughs> well, I, I love those sentiments. And I, I think, you know, they, they apply so much to what we talked about here today. There's there's one thing, you may, something you made me think of there, Bob. I've gotten really into stoic philosophers in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so, kind of that good to great book when they talked about Stockdale, you know, the Stockdale paradox. And I was like, you know, being in the over in uh, Vietnam being prisoner of war. And I thought, well, who is this guy? And what's this about? And there's this great quote by Epictetus and I'm on the daily stoic Instagram feed, whatever. So I get these things, right? And it says, the true man is revealed in difficult times. So when trouble comes, think of yourself as a wrestler whom God, like a trainer, has paired with, with a tough young buck. For what purpose? To turn you into an Olympic, to turn you into Olympic class material. Yes. And uh, when you were saying that, it just made me think, yeah, I... I can whine or feel sorry for myself in my head when things aren't going the way I would like, 
Or if I took this attitude of like, oh no, God's trying to turn me into Olympic material. I, I did competitive judo all my growing up years. And so I know this, like, if you want to be better, you got to fight people better than you kind of thing. So anyways, when you said that, that's just what came to mind for me. Good. It's, it's, it's a good homily, I think. Yeah. Well, this was so fun. You're both welcome back on the show anytime you want. I, I really <laughs> appreciate you guys doing this. This is fun. So anytime I could be on, on a program with the two of you is fun. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank it, you. It, it is fun. And Jess, I really do appreciate you, you you doing this. It kind of makes it that, you know, doubly nice, you might say. So <laughs> Great. Well, thanks everybody for listening.